Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud, ESG Clarity's podcast. I'm Global Deputy Editor Natasha Turner and today I'm bringing you another sponsored sector special, this time on energy. This episode is sponsored by Royal London Asset Management and joining me first today is Mike Fox, Head of Sustainable Investments at RLAM. So it's great to have you with us, Mike. Thanks for the invite. There's been a lot of news about the energy sector recently that, uh, you know, kind of be hard to miss. And most listeners will be familiar uh, with what's going on. But if you could just please briefly explain the impact from the past few months where we've seen things such as inflation, the war in Ukraine, what these have had on the energy sector and what this means for the transition to renewables. Sure. So we go back to the end of last year, there was already starting to be something of an energy shortage. Now that was a function of reopening post-COVID and people starting to travel again. And it was also a function of there's been a lot less investment in oil and gas in recent years, partly because the economy is weak, but partly for environmental reasons as well. So at the end of last year, we were already seeing prices start to rise, uh, but it was manageable. It was nothing that ultimately couldn't be resolvable. And then obviously in February, Ukraine was invaded. Now, uh, Russia is only 2% of the global economy, but it's a much bigger proportion of commodity markets. So it is a major supplier of oil and gas, particularly into Europe, uh, but also globally in the UK. Up until then, somewhere between 8% and 10% of our energy mix was from Russian gas. And effectively that country became North Korea overnight, a complete pariah um, to the extent that with or without sanctions, it was deemed unacceptable to be buying um, anything off them if you could avoid it. So effectively what's happened is the supply demand balance has shifted quite considerably for carbon. And like all commodities, uh, when demand still remains strong and supply falls, they reprice upwards. So that's why you've had this energy spike, uh, oil price spike, price of gas, price of coal, and so on. Its consequences are are pretty profound. I think there was uh, the ability to thread the needle in terms of transitioning from carbon to renewables in a way that wouldn't have disrupted energy markets pre the Ukraine, that's going to be a lot harder to do now, um, really, because even though in the end, this is probably going to supercharge the development of renewable energy, it takes time. If you start from today and want to build an offshore wind farm in the UK, you're talking six to eight years before it comes operational. So I think in the end, it probably accelerates decarbonisation because governments will not want to be dependent on Russian oil and gas. But in the short term, it's created a pretty, um, you know, pretty short market for, for carbon to uh, to the benefit of those companies that can provide it. Yeah. Is that really the case? Do you think that there was a, a way of um, transitioning without disrupting the the energy sector in that way? Uh, I mean, or or is this kind of just um, accelerated an inevitable um, shake-up if we are going to fully transition? It was tough before. But remember, the quite critical variable for energy is that everybody has to buy it. Mm. So the social consequences of high energy prices are pretty bad. You know, it tends to be unemployed, elderly, people who have to spend a lot of time at home um, and also are less wealthy that need cheap energy. 
so we could have decarbonized much faster in the past but um the decision was made that we wouldn't because of the social consequences and to some extent now you're seeing uh the outcome if we gone a different way you know if we had uh, decided to really kind of go after carbon much more quickly um you know you would have seen uh, what we're seeing now a doubling of energy prices and all the consequences but that was deemed not the right path but it's now somewhat being forced upon us right yeah so thinking about the uk specifically and the transition here um we've seen fairly recently um the uk's um, new energy strategy or not new but you know the sort of new announcements on it what's your view on this i think if we took a 20 year view of politics and energy strategy it's not a happy one unfortunately energy cycles are in decades and political cycles are not so you've had quite contradictory messages on nuclear power for example um where some governments have been for it some have been against it and you know it takes 15 years to build a nuclear power plant so that's difficult um you've also seen you know different policies towards um renewable energy so for example onshore wind um has been largely um uh, impaired by a number of areas that would be very suitable having effectively politicians are elected on the basis of it not happening so you know politics and energy policy have not been a happy mix in the past that said the new energy policy is sensible it's a lot more wind it's nuclear you know and over time it's basically going to reduce uh, energy security issues and reduce carbon but again it will take many many years to deliver and in the interim it's going to be difficult to balance the three things energy policy tries to do which is decarbonization security and cost um the triangle which nobody up to now has managed to do all three at the same time does that have an impact then on on your job um and if it's sensible is that kind of does that open doors for you or if there is this kind of disruption with a political cycle that's um, a much shorter time frame, yeah, is that disruptive or do you kind of have to just keep doing what you're doing? It is disruptive. I mean, everything is energy transformed. Like we are energy transformed. It's just that we protein, not coal. You know, it's like everything is energy transformed. So if energy becomes much more expensive, it affects everything and um, it affects the price that we pay to live our everyday lives it affects the corporate world in terms of the price that they have to pay to manufacture goods it affects central bank policy which is based around inflation targeting it is an incredibly profound shift the interesting point is to like if you're investing what do you do um you know i think this is the first year for a number of years where you've wanted carbon intensive portfolios that is a big change so for the last decade you've been rewarded really for decarbonizing your investment portfolio this year you've needed to recarbonize it not many people want that i mean that's like you know most people particularly in our sustainable funds for example choose us because we are decarbonizing rapidly and we think that is environmentally the right thing to do it also you know has an effect on 
all asset prices. So, you know, rising interest rates affect all asset prices. It'll affect house prices. It affects the price of bonds. It affects the price of equities. And, you know, as you've seen, those prices have readjusted downwards in the last, you know, four to six weeks because of it. So, you know, this, this is my like 23rd year of investing now. I've managed money through the financial crisis. That was pretty scary. Managed money through September 11th and the terrorist attacks then. And the, the world has a remarkable ability to evolve, to heal and to kick on. So, you know, and good companies tend to figure it out. You know, problems are like puzzles. They're kind of there to be solved. And, you know, the best companies will do it. And they will probably decarbonize much more rapidly than they would have done previously because it's going to save them costs. They're probably going to digitize much more quickly than they were previously because that will help them save costs. Um, so you can argue in some respects it might not change the end game in terms of where you think the world will get to. So in some respects it changes everything, but it kind of changes nothing. You know, it's the, in the end you can justify probably the same way of investing as you did before and after. Well, let's talk about some of those um, companies that, that might going to be decarbonizing faster or that are going to be good companies. Let's drill down into the sector a little bit. Um, as a sustainable manager, and you know, you say you've been you've been seeing uh, various ebbs and flows in in your time. So, what do you look for in an energy company, and where are you seeing the opportunities? I think energy divides into oil, gas, coal exploration, and then utilities. So, we've consistently struggled with the oil and gas and coal companies. Interestingly, it's not just an environmental issue. You know, it's a governance issue as well. BP's having to write off $25 billion of its Russian operations. You know, we would argue that's a governance issue operating in Russia as to the wisdom of that. And also, you know, commodities are often found in very difficult parts of the world. So it's not just the carbon issues in relation to oil and gas and mining. It's where those commodities are, the regimes you have to deal with to to remove them from those jurisdictions. And for us, that's been incredibly challenging to support as sustainable investors. So we don't invest in those areas. What's different though is more the utility sector where you can find companies like SSE, for example, in the UK, where they are making a transition themselves from diversified coal, gas and renewable power generation to basically renewable energy with a little bit of gas generation attached that we can get on side on you know business like SSC if you think of their electricity distribution networks as a net zero solution as well we've got to plug our cars into them and things like that you know it's kind of 90% renewables and 10% carbon yeah we can live with that you know and we think it's directionally going to be even more renewables and less carbon in the future so the, the the real message is that there's going to be uh, an explosion in renewable energy that regrettably climate change couldn't create. You know, COP26 was disappointing. You know, we were not on the path to one and a half degrees and still aren't. But this might do it. This might actually kind of get the level of action that's needed to, to get that decarbonisation by a different route. Obviously, we all wish it hadn't been this way. But if you can focus your energy investments more on utilities and those with big books of renewable energy that are going to grow it, that seems like a very sensible way 
for sustainable investors to benefit from higher energy prices without having to compromise standards in terms of investing in some of the more problematic areas. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. And and so you you sort of mentioned it a bit before and a bit just then, but how have rising energy prices impacted your portfolios? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a negative, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I think, you know, if you are thinking what is the perfect portfolio for current markets, it's long carbon, short duration. So, you know, we've talked about long carbon element. You really want as much carbon in your portfolio as you could possibly get. You know, if you look at, uh, as, as we're talking today in early early May, you know, it's um, uh, you looked at the US market, the energy sector, which is oil and gas is up 40%, four zero, and the next sector is up one after that. And then every other sector is down. That is a remarkable construct to, to equity markets. It's been effectively a one sector market this year. The, the short duration bit is the inflation point, really, which is inflation goes up and interest rates go up longer duration, more growth orientated businesses are mechanically more impacted by that than businesses that have lower valuations. So again, you know, sustainable investing is a long duration strategy. I mean, we think the world looks incredibly different on a 10, 20 year view. And our advice to investors is get on the right side of that. You know, it's like uh, if you're saving on those kind of time horizons, certain industries may not exist in 10, 20 years time. They're the big parts of indexes and general portfolios. Um, but, it, but that long duration means that, again, we're more impacted by rising rates. So the two things together have, have, have not been helpful for, for all sustainable strategies and ours included. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, I feel like, well, you know, certainly in the UK, that's a fairly easy message to get on board with. And yet, you know, I, I have my pension in uh, the Royal London Sustainable World Trust. And, you know, if I log into my app, I'm seeing minus numbers for the whole year. So there's still a worry, even though I'm bought into that, to that message. So how, how can you reassure people or what, what kind of things would you say, uh, you know, going on from that kind of overall message of yeah kind of yeah, what it's going to be in 20 years yeah no, it's a fair point i mean my pension's in uh, exactly the same fund as yours so i mean context is important you know the last 12 years have been great for sustainable investors and the last 12 weeks haven't so you know we all think about the short term but really the dominant feature of the last decade has been decarbonisation, digitisation, healthcare, rewarding for being rewarded for high ESG standards. That seems pretty unlikely to have just gone away in 12 weeks. So that would be point one. I think point two is that when we talk to a lot of investors to really get uncomfortable with this idea that, you know, investment markets tend to mirror economies and Economies grow about 70% of the time and investment markets go up about 70% of the time. So every in a 10-year period, you should expect three down years, you know, but economies recover and share prices recover and that's why you get onto new highs. So, you know, but I think it's like trying to understand that there is an ebb and flow to how investment performance is delivered and there will be down years as well as up years. I think the final point as well is for anybody saving for the longer term you do actually want lower prices in the short term so if you were thinking about wanting to buy a bigger house 
and you've got a small house yourself, really you want house prices falling because obviously you can buy what you you know you'll take some loss on what you sell, but you'll you'll take, get a bigger gain on what you could buy. And it's the same with investing for pensions. You know, if you've got thirty years to save and you know you need to buy a certain amount of something to have a good retirement, for the twenty nine of those years you want prices lower. <laughs> it's like you don't want them higher. So because you can buy more of what you need at a lower price. So. I think, you know, the message that I kind of give is like get used to the rhythm of markets, understand that falling prices for long-term savers are actually a, a good thing. Um, obviously, people will de-risk as they get closer to retirement and rightly so. Um, you know, and then I think I would still say like if you are a long-term saver, sustainable investing in some ways is probably the only way to invest. You know, it's like it... it, it does really match incredibly well people with have long-term horizons because we do think it is locked into the most obvious trends, the most profound trends environmentally and socially. And over time, as well as that being the right thing to do from where to get your investment return from, it should be a successful way of investing. So, but you know, go back to the previous questions, you know, wars, commodity crises, it would be a surprise if we were performing well at the moment, because I think it would imply we own certain things that we've suggested in the past we shouldn't be owning. So, you know, I've seen it before as well, which may or may not help. Um, there was the commodity super cycle in 2006 to 2008 when China was rebuilding out. And there was all theories then about, you know, there was not enough iron ore, not enough copper, not enough coal in the world and and it passed and you know i think it's much more likely that it will pass again what the timing of which though is is clearly uncertain have you changed um or have you adjusted any of your energy positions over the past few months it's made us incrementally more positive on two types of energy investments one are the renewable side of things so um you know, Scottish and Southerners and Energy SSE is one of the largest positions we have now. And we just think that's incredibly well positioned to deliver net zero for the UK and the extra offshore wind that the UK government wants now wants to build. I think also companies that can help reduce energy usage, it's right to be more optimistic on. So we own a number of companies, typically engineering companies that can go into factories and for a relatively low amount of cost, reduce their energy usage. I would imagine the phone is ringing off the hook at that business at the moment. So, you know, where if we can benefit from the growing trends in renewable energy and find companies that help other people use less energy, those are some of the adjustments that we made in the portfolios. Okay. And just a final point then, you mentioned net zero. What's your kind of um, takeaway, sort of higher level trajectory um, of kind of energy's role in the overall path to net zero? It's one part, but it's only a part. It's a part that's had the most focus and rightly so up to now, but really agriculture, property, you know, there are some other big things to knock over if we're going to deliver net zero. So the energy sector has gone first 
and um, it's still got a lot of work to do, but it's going to have to broaden out much, much more in terms of different industries if we are going to deliver net zero. We do think net zero is achievable. We, we notice there's a domino effect at the moment that you know a, a company commits to reducing their scope one and two emissions. It starts to ring up their suppliers and says, well, I've made this commitment. I want you to reduce yours. We ring up their suppliers, we reduce ours. So there, there is an incredible amount of activity going on in the corporate world in terms of net zero. Um, and I think we should be optimistic that we can make significant strides towards it um, but it's going to have to be a broad and long effort across a whole range of industries to, to get this done. Great well yeah and, and, a, and an optimistic note to end on so that's that's brilliant well thanks so much for joining today Mike. You're very welcome and thank you for your time and your questions. So for the second part of the sector special series we get to dig a little bit into the sector itself so today I'm delighted to be joined by Next Energy Group CEO, Michael Bonte Freetime to do just that for the energy sector. So thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely, pleasure to be with you. Great, so for those listeners who aren't aware, can you give a brief summary of Next Energy Group and your role there? Sure, so let's start with uh, Next Energy Group. Next Energy Group is a solar specialist. Uh, we're active across the main business areas that comprise solar developments and solar assets and the management of solar plants. So we are a asset developer, uh, greenfield and brownfield. We develop solar projects across geographies. We, just to give you some ideas, we have about a thousand megawatts under development in the UK, a similar number in Italy, a larger number than that in Greece and many other geographies. And we basically take a, a project all the way through to the ready to build status. We're in that sector because we realize that one of the things that is slowing down the deployment of renewable energy, and in our case, solar, is actually the uh, absence of enough solar projects. And so we're a solar developer, so we can increase the number of projects that are available to be built and therefore contribute to our mission of generating a more sustainable a future by leading the transition to clean energy. We then also are in our second business area are active as a fund manager. So we raise uh, private funds to invest in solar assets. We raise listed vehicles to invest in, in solar assets across geographies. Our flagship fund is Next Energy Solar Fund, which is listed on the, on the London Stock Exchange. But we also have other investment vehicles that are actively investing in solar projects across the world. So today, across our various investment funds, we have assets starting from Poland, the UK, Italy, Spain, Portugal, the US, India, Chile. So we really are a global investor in, in the solar sector. And then the third business unit is what we call operating asset management where we take solar projects that are operating solar portfolios and we maximize the value that is generated from those existing solar assets, minimizing the risk, making sure they perform to the maximum technical, operational, and financial potential that they have. So as I said, a solar specialist across various of the key kind of value inputs in the solar sector. 
My own role is I, I am the, the group uh, founding partner. I, I created, I started the group in 2006, and I am lucky enough to be the group CEO overseeing all of those business activities with a fantastic team that is actually doing the, the really hard work of, of progress. Yeah, great. So you have quite a unique perspective then. You've got sort of all sides of the coin in terms of um, you kind of know what investors want to see from solar companies, what they're asking for, um, you know, in the areas like disclosure and um, regulations, those kinds of things. Uh, and so, yeah, you kind of got both of those perspectives. From the kind of solar development perspective, what are some of the challenges and what kind of things can ESG investors or people looking at the space be asking? Sure. So, so as you look at the kind of start of solar projects from an ESG perspective, there are, especially across multiple geographies, there are some key factors. You know, what is the, the land use previous to, to the site becoming a, uh, a solar power plant? Uh, what is the integration of that solar, that future solar plant in the local community? Uh, what is the uh, integration into the landscape? What landscaping activities are necessary? Water uses is particularly important. The respect of, of course, any kind of national parks or areas of, of particular interest from a, from a geographic, from a landscape perspective. We often have sites where there are archeological uh, areas of interest, and so we have to respect those. So from an ESG perspective, there really is very much to consider when taking a, a piece of land and starting to develop it with the idea of building a solar power plant on that tract of land in the future. Mm -hmm. And are those the sorts of questions that you've been getting from potential investors? And has there been any changes in uh, what you're seeing from that perspective? What we're seeing right now from investors is indeed investors, when they do due diligence on us, on our funds, on the opportunities with us, is an increasing focus on the ESG side of things. And it really is very broad, right? Because you have the environmental side, some of those topics I've, I've touched upon mm. only in the development side, but they go through the entire lifespan of a solar asset. You then also have that social component. And the social component goes from how you treat your own employees to how you interact with the communities that are located in the area of the, the solar plant itself. So it's a very broad ranging uh, social perspective that investors are increasingly interested in. And then of course, governance is key. How do you manage all of those, those decision points? How do you ensure that you're looking at all of those factors when taking into consideration how to deploy what is ultimately the investor's money. So we have seen a, a very significant increase in focus on those key, key topics. And so investors, I would encourage them to look at not just a sector, renewable energy, but actually within renewable energy, look at who is making a difference, who is building new assets and not just acquiring existing assets. Because for example, if you were to acquire an existing asset, the benefit of that asset, of that renewable energy plant already exists because someone else built it. So if you are just buying it, then you're not really adding to the environmental impact of your investment. Whereas if you are investing in a company that is building new assets, 
then of course your, your, your capital is being used to create something new, to reduce climate change, to mitigate the carbon emissions of the power sector and so on. So that is having much more of an impact than if you're just buying existing assets that have been built you know, two years ago or 10 years ago by someone else. Mm-hmm. But even within the sector, there are significant differences between which companies are more engaged and less engaged from an ESG perspective. Are there any other um, challenges or just things that people should be looking at that are unique to renewables or clean energy or just the energy sector in general? Well, the, the energy sector in general is facing some very significant challenges as we speak. And, and it obviously particularly results from COVID, from the economic impact uh, post-COVID, from the war in Ukraine, and everything else happening around that. And those challenges, from my perspective, are, are probably the two main challenges are probably one, the affordability of energy of power, in particular in our sector, and how we have to figure out and invest more in sources of power that are not driven by the pricing of hydrocarbons, which none of us control, but actually are sourced from regimes that are countries that are far away from us that are leading to much higher power prices, in this case, in in the UK. So the affordability is a key challenge for the sector, as well as a decarbonization. So as we head towards net zero, and one of those key drivers, of course, is decarbonizing the power generation sector. Those are the two key challenges that we face. And the reality is that institutional investors, large funds, but equally retail investors, private wealth managers, can make a difference in addressing those challenges if they use their capital in a thoughtful way, in a way to help address those challenges. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. And uh, a nice, powerful point to end on there. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Natasha, thanks for having me. Good to speak. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.